Yeah, that's like half the room taken off there. <laughs> if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn in it to Galatians to the end of chapter 5. We'll be reading from the first or the last verse of chapter 5 and the first six of chapter 6. But let me remind you of where we're at. Um, so far in this letter, we've learned about the content of the gospel which is that anybody who puts their faith in Christ as Savior has the perfect righteousness of Christ counted to them through faith. And that is the entire basis for somebody being right with God and expecting to have heaven. Um, it is His righteousness, not our own moral law-keeping. Uh, moreover, the believer who receives the, the, the Holy Spirit of God, as, as part of that, we are regenerated by the Spirit, he dwells within us, that gives us both the desire and the ability to actually love God's Word, to love His laws, and to do them. And uh, such people are also under the shaping influence of the Holy Spirit. If they give our attention to the Word, to prayer, to obedience, and things like that, and then the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit grow in us, things like love, joy, and peace, and so forth. So that's what we've been seeing in this letter, and now we're going to see this morning what the fruit of the Spirit looks like in a person. What will you do or not do if you are a person who's being reshaped uh, into the image of Christ by the Spirit's activity? So, we learn what that is, what's first on Paul's list as we look at Galatians 5, 26 to chapter 6, verse 6. Let me read those and then we'll pray. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Let's pray. We desire, Lord, because you've put the desire in us, we desire to have a community that functions like what's being described here, but it's, it's unknown to us until we see freshly again what your, your good work is, how you want to shape us into the image of Christ. And so would you open our eyes this morning to, to benefit from this, these exhortations that are here um, so that we can also walk in your ways and enjoy the fruit of the Spirit, enjoy the fruit of your presence among us. We ask you to do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in my former career uh, at a medical device company, I walked into a conversation that was going on between two people uh, in my department. <clears throat> One man was describing how arrogant someone else was that he had to work with. 
And I have to say, I couldn't help but laugh at, at his creativity. Uh, in describing the arrogance of this other guy, he said, between the two of us, we know everything that there is to know in the world. He knows everything there is to know, except that he's a jerk, and I know that. <laughs> I suppose it's a guilty pleasure to laugh at that. I, mean, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't recommend becoming skilled at slandering somebody else's character. Uh, but it does speak to a real problem, doesn't it? The problem is pride in the human heart and all the ways that it manifests itself and wrecks our, our, our relationships with one another. It's easy to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Um, it's natural to feel self-important, to be self-absorbed, to compare ourselves with other people and think I'm genuinely better than them. And then there's also a pride that masquerades as humility when we say, I'm no good at anything, which is just disappointment that I'm not as great as I want to be. But they're both rooted in pride, and this affects our relationships with other people, like the friction between these two co-workers. So pride is a fundamental problem in the, the human heart, and it's the first issue that Paul addresses when he moves from the fruits of the Spirit to like, what are you going to actually do? What kind of a person are you going to be like uh, day to day? And so he addresses that. He says in verse 26, let us not become conceited. In chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And then in verse 4, there's instruction about proper and improper boasting, which we'll explain a little bit later. So this passage is, it addresses the issue of pride, conceit, and the context is in our relationship with other people, particularly those who are in the church, because Paul is writing to churches, and he's aware of some friction that's going on. And he knows that underneath the friction, there's a pride there, there's a conceit there, and he wants to make sure that they're aware and they don't go that direction, that they shut that impulse down. We're going to find out what it looks like to be a, a community where humility is obvious in the way that we actually treat each other. So let's go to the passage. Um, it begins with what we aspire not to do <laughs> with the Spirit working in our lives, God helping us. We make it our aim not to become proud. That, that's where it starts. We make it our aim not to become proud. Um, verse 26 again, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Whenever we read a uh, let, us, let us do or let us not do kind of exhortation, it's because it's likely to happen if we don't do anything to prevent it. <clears throat> it you will become conceited if you don't do something to, to not go that way. That's how this starts. We're likely to be proud if we don't recognize that that's a real temptation that we can fall into. And if we fall into it, Paul tells us, if we act in pride, the result, the, the outgrowth of that is going to be provoking and envying one another. Provoking. Um, that's like poking a stick, pushing people's buttons. 
um, being annoying and irritating other people because of some prideful thing that we say or do. Or we might nurse grudges that we aren't getting what we deserve. That's the envying part. We don't want that kind of environment. Paul probably has in mind a specific temptation to pride as he writes this. Um, and it is the temptation to religious self-righteousness. Because he's, uh, he's writing to the churches here, and he knows of things going on, and the religious self-righteous person says, I'm a better follower than the other people who are in the church. Um, remember the situation of Galatians. Uh, he's writing to a church that's a mixture of believers from a Jewish background and a non-Jewish background. And they were getting along fine for a while uh, because they had heard the gospel that we're saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by our righteous deeds. And they realized, hey, we're all one and the same in our, in our need for our Savior and in His grace that's been given to us regardless of our background. So they're all getting along fine originally. But then teachers came in. Someone came in teaching them, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, you non-Jewish believers need to get circumcised. You need to keep certain laws of Moses to Israel. And once you do that, then, then you are considered part of the people of God. Well, if you're the Jewish believer and you're hearing this teaching, what are you going to think? Wow, you know, I've do I'm doing it right. I've got everything. I've got faith in Christ and I've got circumcision and the law of Moses. Like, I'm in. I'm, I'm one of the real deal. And then the, the, the non-Jewish believers are thinking, oh, I'm deficient. Or, or you feel like you're the real people of God and I'm not. You think you're better than me? And so there's, these, there's this tension going on. They might be offended. They might be envious because somebody's stirring the pot with this bad, false gospel. And it brings out the pride in the, in the provocation and in the, and in the envying. Pride in the heart leads to those things. Not even the apostles of Jesus were immune to it. Um, James and John, you might remember this, uh, those of you who know your Bible. So James and John go to Jesus one day, and they say, Teacher, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So they want to be second in command in the earthly kingdom that they think Jesus is about to bring. And they are totally sure they deserve this to be, you know, right behind Jesus in terms of superiority to everybody else. But Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Speaking of his suffering. And though they have no idea what he's talking about, they say, oh yeah, yeah, we are able. <laughs> These are the apostles. How did the other apostles react to that conversation? <laughs> they were provoked. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. That's what pride leads to. Claims that, you know, we deserve stuff. We're better than everybody. We're better than these ten other guys. And then the provocation, the anger, the, the tension. Hey, wait a minute. You think you're better than me? Because they think, I deserve to be number two, not them. Paul says, let us not become proud, provoking one another, envying one another. Because remember the, the rest of the letter up to this point. 
If salvation is all of grace, if it's all of Christ and not because of your moral law-keeping, then there's no place for being conceited. We are equal in our need for God's grace and His provision of His grace through Christ's death on the cross. That's our equality. There's no place for self-righteousness when we have the righteousness of Christ that saves us, not our own. Now, what will it look like if we operate with that mindset? There are two things that people will do who think this way. And the first one is this. We help someone get back up after they fall. We help someone get back up after they fall. So listen again to the first part of verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What's that talking about? Caught in a transgression. That language speaks of being caught unawares by sin. Not caught in the act by someone else, though that might be how it gets exposed, but caught as in a trap that they didn't see coming. This is a person who has violated a commandment of God. It is a sin, but it's born more out of weakness or ignorance rather than a plan to rebel against God. Maybe it's something they did as an impulse before they had time to reflect, and now they regret it. Or maybe it's a new Christian who hasn't unlearned the ways of the past yet, and they just don't really know better. Or it could be somebody who's been a believer for a long time, but they just have a wrong way of thinking. It hasn't really been challenged or exposed to them. And so they're just doing what's natural, and they're, they're having these consequences in their life, and they just don't see the connection. Or maybe it's a habitual sin that, that a believer is trying to break, but they just don't know how. They're caught. That's the situation in mind here. And Paul says there's a way to handle that in the church. You who are spiritual, he says, meaning you who have the Spirit, that is every believer, everybody in the church, you guys restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So you restore, you mend, you, you put them back on their feet again. Your motivation is to see them free from the sinning like this because you want them to experience the grace of God, the goodness of God, walk in His holy ways, which are right. You lead them on this path back to, to, to life, to health. And you do it in a spirit of gentleness, which means being considerate. You point out the sin or the thought process that led to it in such a way that preserves their dignity, that, that treats them with respect, that communicates care rather than condemnation. That isn't something that we do well in the culture that we live in, I don't think. If someone sins, especially if they're well-known, the likely response is a string of condemnation and hate through social media. 
no matter how good a person is, no matter how much good they've done, if they fall even one time, then that's the only thing that matters anymore. Their sin becomes their identity. All support is withdrawn. They get piled on because they did that one thing. That's how naturally we react when someone is caught in a sin. But the gospel teaches us a different way, a life-giving way that actually works. It's the way of restoring someone in a spirit of gentleness. So it's not rubbing their face in what they've done. It's not piling on. It's preserving their dignity and valuing them as a person made in the image of God whom we want to help back to wholeness. So we don't want to miss the person in front of us while we bring correction that's needed. We have to know this is one of God's people that we're talking to here. So we be considerate. But how do we do it? Well, I've been on the receiving end of this in my own life, so I can give an example. And one that sticks out to me um, was when I was single and I was living with a Christian family, and they were on staff with a Christian organization, and, and the, the dad of the house was, was a mentor to, to me. Um, I was living there, and I had a job that I quit uh, just outright because it was toxic, <laughs> physically and, and spiritually. Uh, it was a chemical manufacturing plant, and so there's all sorts of safety viola violations. It was actually a very unhealthy place to be working, <laughs> so that was part of it. But also just the atmosphere, all the employees, the bickering, the fighting between management and whatever, it was just hard to be there. Well, anyway, I finally couldn't handle it anymore. And I just outright walked off. I mean, I gave him a notice, but like it was, I'm done. I had no plan. Um, it was May, and I had enough money saved up. Well, I thought, well, I'm going to take the summer off. This has been a rough year. I'm just going to go enjoy life. And at the end of summer, I'll look for a job, and I'll get a job. I'm employable, right? Had a college degree. So I did that. I just enjoyed life for three months, and then end of summer, started applying for jobs. Guess what? No jobs. Couldn't find a job. Couldn't work anywhere. And I began to be in want, <laughs> and I couldn't pay the rent to the family that I was staying with. And so my mentor, he set me down, and he started with questions. Not accusations. Just questions. So tell me, you know, what happened? And he heard my story. He didn't threaten to kick me out of the house for not having the rent money. He showed compassion. It's hard to be in that situation, is it? But he didn't stop there. He helped me see my wrong thinking that led to my situation. He said, Mark, what was your plan? <laughs> How were you going to make sure that you could afford to live here? And I realized in that moment I had no plan. Or I had a plan, but it was a very stupid plan. I was presuming on God to provide what I wanted when I wanted it. And when the Lord didn't do what I expected, I brought this situation on myself. It was my fault. And it exposed my irresponsibility and my presumption. And from that point on, I began to change. But it started with this conversation with a mentor who showed compassion, who listened, who asked questions, who didn't just jump in and say, what's wrong with you? But he, he led me to see 
aha, you didn't have a good plan, did you? <laughs> there was something going on in your heart there that was leading to all of this. That's where we need to go, the presumption. He helped me. That was restoring me in a spirit of gentleness. And that's what it looks like for us. We don't pile on with condemnation, but neither do we affirm the sin. Uh, we can recognize that's what it is, but also lead people to what's right. We help somebody get back up after they fall. This comes with a caution as we do it, though. The second half of verse 1 says, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That means when we address somebody else's sin, we need to be watchful over our own hearts because we can be tempted, especially by self-righteous spiritual pride. It's easy to think, I must be better than them because I'm not sinning like they are. Like they're in a bad spot, but I'm in a good place. And we think, it's because I'm such a good person. I would never have done what you did. Those kinds of thoughts can come in. I'm weak, but you're strong. That's why I'm the one helping you. Well, that's kind of like the Pharisee and the tax collector parable. There was this parable that Jesus taught where a Pharisee goes to the temple and he's praying and he's thanking God. And there's a tax collector in the room too and he's there on his face. And the tax collector's the guy who's the traitor to, to Israel. He's collecting their taxes and giving them to the Roman government. Um, and so he's the bad guy and the Pharisee's there and he's thinking, I'm the good guy in the room. And he's saying, I thank you, God, that I do this, 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 and this. And that I'm not like other men, like this tax collector over here. Surely, God, you recognize my superiority in this situation. What's he doing? He's comparing himself to this guy who he sees as a sinner. And he says, oh, but I'm not. That's our temptation when we're helping somebody who is caught in some transgression. It's a spiritual self-righteousness, and we are warned in the scriptures that that's a position where you are likely to fall into sin yourself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. When we help somebody in sin, we need to remember we could be the next person who's caught in sin. That person that we're helping today might be the one who needs to help me tomorrow. If we lower our guard like David did and any committed sin with Bathsheba, if we lower our guard and think we're safe, well then guess what? We're not because we don't have it in us. We need Christ every moment or we fall. So those are the things that have to go through our mind to help us make sure we're doing this in a gentle way. Restoring, looking, watching ourselves too, because we're going to need this. That's the first thing we do. We help each other get back up after we fall. Here's another thing. We lighten each other's burdens. We lighten each other's burdens. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So think of a person who's living in a three-story apartment. They don't have an elevator. Actually, that describes you guys over here. <laughs> There's no elevator where you live. <laughs> so they've got a bunch of luggage, 
and it's, they're trying to get up the stairwell to the third floor apartment, and they're carrying all this stuff, and you're going up the stairwell, and you see them. You've got a choice to make. Am I going to just ignore that and walk right past, or am I going to say, may I help you carry that? That's what this is saying we do. We don't see the person struggling under the luggage and just do nothing. We go to that person and we say, can I help you bear, bear that? That's what this is about. Some commentators see this burden as a restatement of restoring a person who's caught in a trust, uh, transgression. You help them get out from under the burden of sin. That certainly is an application of this. But sin is not the only burden that we carry. A burden is anything that is a weight on your soul. Something you're struggling under. It's robbing you of joy. It's making it difficult to carry on. And we have many burdens, don't we? You could be struggling with fear of the future. You could be weighed down with regret over things that have happened in your past, things you should have done or didn't do. You could be overwhelmed with all that you have on your plate. You could be grieving over a loss. You could be suffering with long-term pain. You could be in financial distress. You could be in a situation that feels unbearable. We carry many burdens, but we can't carry them alone. As much as we'd like to think that we can handle life on our own, the reality is we need others. So the Lord is building a community where we don't let each other carry the weight of our situations alone. He's creating a community of people where everyone is looking at everybody else carrying luggage <laughs> and saying, can I help you with that? <clears throat> now, how do we do it? Well, for sure, sometimes it is material help, like actually carrying luggage. <laughs> We've got people that are moving pretty soon. We're gonna, they're going to need that. They're going to need you to bear those burdens. Sometimes it's people that are in desperate financial situations, and that's why we also have benevolence as part of our budget to make sure that we can care for people who are in a situation. Um, but it could be, and probably is for many of us, the most important burden-bearing that we can do is help with the emotional and the spiritual burdens that we carry. Sometimes what a person needs <clears throat> is just a listening ear, a friend who cares someone who will sit with you in your suffering so that you know you're not alone. That is the one thing that Job's counselors did right. If you've read the book of Job, all this terrible stuff happened to him. He lost all of his children. He lost all his possessions. His health went all in just a short period of time. And so his friends came, and it says in Job 2 that they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. That part they did right. <clears throat> when they opened their mouth, things changed. But at that point, they did the right thing. 
We sometimes just need somebody to sit there and know. And we know that somebody else knows. And we're not alone in this. There's another kind of burden bearing that we're going to need all the time, and I think that's to be encouraged by the Scriptures. This is also for our souls. We, we need to be encouraged by the promises of God and all that we have in Christ. Paul said in Romans 15:4 that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Like we lose hope day by day with all the challenges. And we forget the invisible realities that actually are the real hope. And so we need somebody to come in and say, hey, here's a scripture. Here's, here's what God says to us. This is what's sure and can't be changed by our circumstances. And we get a, a, a new perspective. We look above our immediate horizon to see what God is doing. And then we have hope. And it says the scriptures were written so that we would have that. So the more, the more skilled we can be, the more we're in the Word, the more we're walking by the Spirit, which, is the, by, by, which He gave us the Word, the more we're doing that, the more equipped we are to actually encourage each other. Because you're not just left with somebody's good advice, but you're left with God's very reality, His promises, what He's doing in the world. <clears throat> we're going to need that. Over and over again, if you've ever been in a low point and you can't remember where the hope is, <clears throat> we need somebody to first come and, and hear you out, not jump in right away. Oh, you're sad? Well, here's a verse. Like, no, but there needs to be some transition there. Tell me what's going on. <clears throat> I want to make sure I understand before I say anything. But then once we've done that work of care, compassion, listening, then, okay, it seems like God would say this to you. And you might open the word to them, and then they might go, wow, yeah, that helps me. Just to tell each other that your sins are forgiven, that God will never leave you or forsake you, that he's orchestrating all things according to the wisdom of his love, that, that even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can fear no evil because he is with you. That you're destined to eternal glory for things that are unimaginable, that are waiting for you, reserved in heaven. <clears throat> Those are the things we can tell each other. That's how we bear each other's burdens, that way. And that's what discipleship groups are for, and prayer meetings, and other events that are on the calendar. It's what you do in one-on-ones at a coffee shop with a friend. It's what we do when we invite somebody over for hospitality and definitely do that. That's part of the way you find out what the burdens are. <laughs> Get somebody into your house and have a couple hours with them and ask the questions. You can send a text or an email. I mean, that still counts. <laughs> if you've gotten one, if you were in a low point and then this message came out of the blue from somebody, most of the time, that's going to that's gonna be great for the person receiving it. I've, I've gotten a lot of things that way, so go for it. <clears throat> this is the kind of community that Christ is building by His Spirit. We lighten one another's burdens. And when we do that, the Scripture says, we fulfill the law of Christ.
because this is how Christ does things. Jesus is the ultimate burden bearer. He's the one who bore the weight, the guilt, the shame, and the punishment for our sins. On the cross, He became sin. He became the embodiment of it that we might become His righteousness. He is the great burden bearer. And so when we do that for one another, we're, we're pointing to Him and His grace. Him not letting us carry the luggage of our sin, but to actually remove it from us and give us life instead. So, so we make that reality tangible the way that we actually help each other. The Spirit is shaping us into Christ's image that way. Now, that doesn't come naturally to us, this burden-bearing and this restoring each other in a spirit of gentleness. It's a lot easier to just stay out of the mess of other people's lives, um, to just kind of let them go. You see, oh man, I don't want to get involved in that. <laughs> that's a mess. I got my own messes. I don't want to deal with your mess. I mean, that's easy, but that's also somewhat of self-focus. Yeah, we all have things to do, but we're called into community, and we're called to do these things for one another. So Paul returns to the topic of pride, because that's what gets in the way, when it's all about me and it's no, never about you. This all takes humility. That's, that's where he goes next. That's the subject of verses 3 through 5. He says in verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. <clears throat> so let that statement hang in the air for a moment. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Hmm. <laughs> if, if you think you are something, you deceive yourself because you are nothing. Okay, now how does that feel? <laughs> Is that on anybody's list, list of how you build people up and encourage them and win friends? No, but it's in the Scripture. <clears throat> it goes against the grain, doesn't it? That sounds very uncaring. That sounds offensive. That even sounds untrue. Because after all, isn't every person created in the image of God the crown of His creation? Yes, we are. Do we not have intrinsic worth because of that? Yes, we do. So how is it we're told we are nothing, should not think that we are something in this passage? Well, this isn't about God's evaluation of what you are. It's about your evaluation of what you are. What do you think about yourself? Do you really think that you are something? Do you really think you are better than the people around you? More righteous? More deserving? This is another way of saying Romans 12.3, I say to everyone among you, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Sober judgment is to compare yourself to God rather than to other people. It's, a, it's, you agree, it's when you agree with Jesus who said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's to have the attitude of David 
when he looked up at the stars and he wrote Psalm 8, and he says, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? I don't get it. You created the universe, these galaxies. What am I? Now, that's not denying your intrinsic worth as God's image bearers. But it is admitting, I am not God and I am not the Christ. (laughs) I'm only human like everybody else around me, including the person that I'm trying to restore from a failure and the person who needs me to help carry their luggage. Like, I'm just them. I'm, I'm, that, I'm in the same boat. I'm not God. And that's what verses 4 and 5 are talking about also. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. Now, that sounds a lot like Paul is switching gears here, and he's saying, wait a minute, you're saying there's a reason to boast in yourself? Is this, a, is this a total turnaround, a 180? What is this? It sounds like maybe he's saying, yeah, you can boast in your fine qualities. That should be obvious for everyone to see. But that wouldn't be in keeping with the theme of humility that's here. And it wouldn't be in keeping with verse 14, where Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does he mean here? In verses 4 and 5, well, the issue is comparison with other people. Comparing your work, your ministry, your life with others. We should test our own work, meaning we should have a realistic self-appraisal of our work and not an exalted one. We will see flaws. It should keep us humble that we're just human like everybody else, it should keep us from boasting that we are better than our neighbor, because we're not. However, where we see God's grace at work in our lives, where we see a job well done, where we can see that we have borne our own load and fulfilled our responsibilities, we can take satisfaction in that, and that's not wrong. We have a reason to boast, as it were. Not in comparison to anybody else, not to think more highly than, than them, but taking satisfaction in a good work for its own sake. Having done that which is pleasing to God. That, that satisfaction is right. It's not pride. It's just recognizing God has been gracious to me. I've been able to do some things. I've been able to help this person or that person. Thank you, Lord. It has nothing to do with my comparison to anybody else or what they're doing. I can just take pride, so to speak, in the right sense of the word, that God is at work in me. So it's not pride unless we start comparing it to what our neighbor's doing. Humility is when our self-evaluation is in line with God's evaluation. It's admitting I'm only human and I have human limitations and human sins. But it's also admitting and not denying that the grace of God is at work in me and taking pleasure in the good works he's called me to do. So the point is we need humility to get someone back on their feet after a sin and to bear one another's burdens without provoking or envying one another. And when we do it, 
and God uses us to help someone, we can experience satisfaction in that. Just don't let it go to your head. <laughs> this passage ends with one specific category of people not to miss in this restoring and burden-bearing activity. Paul says in verse 6, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, a pastor could have a field day with that. <laughs> um, this is a specific burden that needs to be lightened in the church and one that can often be overlooked is to share all good things with the one who teaches, which in a church context is the elders, the pastors. You might think pastors are somehow above the need to be helped, that we're never caught in a sin, that we don't struggle under burdens that after all we're the givers of help right <laughs> we must be in a good place all the time but i can tell you on behalf of dan and todd and me that is not true <laughs> we need the same help you need now in the case of pastors who make their living on the gospel like i do all things does include financial support paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.14, that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. If a pastor doesn't have enough to live on, then he can't give himself to the gospel work as fully. And that in turn weakens the church because we don't receive the life-giving word that changes us. So, I unapologetically ask you to give to the church, to share all good things with the one who teaches. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture, but it takes gospel preachers to preach that gospel. So that's just God's word, and I won't dwell on that anymore, but that's part of it. That's part of bearing burdens. But all good things is not limited to that. I would also include the grace of helping us be more free from sin and help us bear the burdens that we carry. We are not always encouraged in doing well because we are only human. So if you ever feel like sending an encouragement to a pastor, <laughs> to one of the three of us, we won't stop you. You know, uh, you can have our phone number and you can text us and, and our email and or, you know, whenever, just as we're as we're walking around. Don't assume that we think that we're doing a good job about, about anything. <laughs> we don't assume that. Um, so your encouragement really matters. Uh, we need you to bear our burdens also. And that's, I think, what Paul has in mind, among other things um, in this chapter. And thank you for your encouragement. I've received it a lot of times. I think all three of us have. Let me just close with this. Um, people whom the Lord is shaping by the Spirit, they help each other get back on their feet after a fall, after a sin. We don't pile on. We don't do what we would do in our pride and just make it worse by adding condemnation. We don't do that. We lighten the burdens of others who are struggling. We find out Where's your struggle? Which means first we take an interest. Have you over for dinner, whatever it takes. And then we get involved. 
when we say something, we do something that, that helps lift the person out from underneath that weight. And we do it all by humbling ourselves before God, knowing that we're nothing more and nothing less than sinners saved by grace. So may Sovereign Grace Church always be growing in this beautiful gospel culture of being humble burden bearers. And I believe that's what he's doing. And he intends to do even this morning through this word. So let's pray. I thank you, Lord, for your graciousness to us. We, the, the beauty of what you intend for us to experience. We fight against it sometimes. In our selfishness, self-righteousness, we miss it. But, like, but you're changing us day by day, and we thank you for that. And we want to experience all that you have for us, all that Christ purchased for us on the cross. Pour out your Spirit among us that we may have the fruit of the Spirit and then these particular works that flow from it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.